0: Cleveland City Council began digging into Mayor Justin Bibb's nearly $2 billion budget proposal this week, pushing back on his plans to reduce unfilled vacancies in the police department and expressing frustration over the lack of hiring to replenish police ranks. Also of concern to council members, the big cuts coming for Cleveland's public schools. More budget hearings are scheduled for next week, and our Abby Marshall, who joins us today, will be on the story. Welcome to the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. Other news on our radar this week. Akron's Citizen Police Oversight Board passed new rules. The board says it'll retain subpoena power, but not if the officer subpoenaed opposes it. New recreational marijuana regulations are coming, but they likely won't come from the legislature. A state task force recommends new training requirements for police heavy on communication. Colleges across the state are making budget cuts, and skiers in northeast Ohio are jonesing for snow. First, the news. It's the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Mike McIntyre. Thanks for joining us. Cleveland City Council questioned Mayor Justin Bibb over his nearly $2 billion budget plan this week. Council must amend or approve it by April 1st. It raised questions about unfilled positions, concerns about a lack of success in replenishing police ranks, and alarm over pending after-school program cuts to, the, to close the gap in a separate budget, that of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. A state task force has recommended training requirements for police officers in Ohio, focusing more on communication and decision-making in the field. Akron's Police Oversight Board has agreed in its new rules that if it subpoenas an officer, the officer does not have to comply. And more cuts at colleges in Ohio, including the suspension and enrollment of a community college in Youngstown. Joining me to talk about those stories and a whole lot more in studio. Idea stream public media associate producer for newscasts, Josh Boos, and local government reporter Abby Marshall. Good morning, both of you. Morning, Mike. Thanks for having me.
1: Hi, happy budgeting week.
0: Happy budgeting week. Okay. <laughs> Only City Hall reporters say that and other wonks. Good to have you. And actually Karen is always celebrating whatever budget time it might be at the state. She's in Columbus, the State House News Bureau Chief Karen Kassler, joins us. Hey.
2: Hey, good morning.
0: Good morning. I was going to warn folks, your voice is sounding a little rough, so we won't lean on you as hard this week. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. Okay. Very good. And we don't take calls on the Friday Roundtable, but please do send us your thoughts on any of our topics. You send them to soi at ideastream.org. I'll be monitoring email throughout the show. You can also find us on X, formerly Twitter, at Sound of Ideas. All right. Let's get ready to roundtable. Cleveland City Council began hearings this week on Mayor Justin Bibb's budget proposal. The focus in this week's hearing was on public safety and how to handle the vacancies the city currently has open. Bibb has proposed bundling 120. five open vacancies outside of the safety forces openings into a pool rather than assigning them to various departments. That way, he could fill needs more quickly. The mayor also wants to cut a number of the unfilled police positions, but still will endeavor to hire a bunch of new cops to try to get up to 1,350 as the number for the force. It's well below that at the moment. So let's dig into a little bit of that, Abby. You reported that council bristled at the mayor's proposal to create a vacancy pool separate from the safety forces. We want to be clear about that. But in general, with openings in a bunch of different departments, what you would generally have is... I have 10 openings in the accounting department. Mm-hmm. They go to accounting. But he might say, you know what, accounting's fine without 10 more. Maybe we could slide those into streets or something. That's sure. basically the idea?
1: Yeah. So each department would say, you know, we have X number of jobs that's put into the budget. This year, it's done a little bit differently. So, you know, not everyone likes change to processes uh, that they are used to. But the idea is is that this might be, in, in some ways, undermining council's authority. Because the cons- uh, the way it works is that the mayor will come to the negotiating table and say, here's my budget estimate, but council ultimately has final say over what goes into that budget. So the idea that they could be approving this pool of open positions without knowing where exactly they're going to go or what jobs those are, uh, that's kind of unsettling to some council members. So like you said, this would give the city more flexibility to say, hey, uh, we have this pool of vacancies and this department building and housing or whatever it may be needs it right now, let's just pull it from the vacancy pool. But some council members are worried about that strategy.
0: One of the arguments for that at the moment is housing uh, inspectors that are needed. And Mm -hmm. we've talked in the past here on this show about the housing first legislation the council approved and the mayor had put forward. And one of the things it's going to include is exterior inspections of houses upon sale. In order Mm -hmm. to do that, you need people. The mayor is saying we can hire 20 building and housing inspectors right now.
1: Yeah, so they actually this is a negotiation like i said the mayor will present it council says we don't like that or we do like that and they can come to an agreement so part of that was taking these positions out of building and housing where other departments could potentially hurt legislation like this residence first which is this huge sweeping housing code overall hall that does require manpower to enforce so yesterday in the budget hearings um the, the mayor's administration came to the table and said, OK, we heard you. Uh, here are 20 vacant positions that we are putting back into building and housing. And a majority of those will be property maintenance, property maintenance inspectors, which will be entry level jobs that can kind of do a lot of this manpower to make sure that these laws that are implemented aren't just laws that are on the books, but are actually going to be put into practice.
0: Talking about public safety, we have a situation in Cleveland where there was a budgeted target workforce in the police department of more than 1,600 officers. That had been the norm for a long time. And then Bibb had dropped that number to 1,498 in the last budget. This year, he's aiming for 1,350. That's just eliminating open positions. It's not eliminating people. They'd still have to hire hundreds in order to get up to that number.
1: Right. And that's kind of the argument here when um, some members of council say they don't like the idea of cutting police positions. Uh, The city says, you know, nothing in the day to day is actually going to change because these aren't jobs that people currently have. The argument from council side is once you take that away, how will you put that back? But like you said, there's still 200 some positions that need to be filled. Um, As you mentioned, that number has dropped pretty significantly in the last few years. But. Uh, the department only employed about 1,200 officers last year. There were about 160 departures from retirement, uh, going to the suburbs, whatever it may be. And, And the cadet classes really only filled in about 30 or so positions. So we are hemorrhaging officers at a rate that we can't keep up with. So the idea is, why don't we cut the number of budgeted officer positions to pay the way for some of these raises and benefits that the mayor has agreed to, signing bonuses, that sort of thing. Uh, And and even if all these positions are filled, it's going to be about a $15 million increase in wages and bonuses compared to previous pay rates. And by law, this needs to be a balanced budget. So it's got to give somewhere. And the city is even kind of skeptical of if they can fill those positions at all.
0: David in Cleveland Heights sends an email. He says, for Cleveland's budgeting, my main hope is that the reduction of police officers, and he means positions uh, that are unfilled, is being done with good reason and with funds shifted more to better policing efforts, such as Mm -hmm. community policing, prevention programs, and stress management training. My main fear is that this process will become too politicized rather rather than reasoned.
1: Sure. And I I think that I have talked about this many times on the show, uh, that police does not necessarily equate to peace so while some might feel safer with a a bigger police presence and that is something that we're hearing from a lot of members of council and a lot of people uh, in in their wards they want a bigger police presence Um, Police are typically reactionary. They respond while a crime is happening or after a crime is happening. So other things that the city is doing to try to address this increase in violence, particularly the root causes of violence, it's a very multidisciplinary approach. So I did stories in the past about these. Uh, violence prevention funds that the city has invested in that can go toward education, housing, mentorship, that sort of thing. So all of these things do need to come together, but we are hearing from council members that what they want in their wards are more police.
0: Let's talk about the schools. It wasn't necessarily a hearing on the school's budget, but the council members were alarmed about what we talked about last week, which is the fact that the Cleveland schools will have to make significant cuts After school programs, some of them with the Boys and Girls Clubs and others will be cut because money that paid for that came from pandemic funds, which Mm -hmm. are now going away. And council members were pretty severe about that. Like, who's getting fired over this?
1: Right. Yeah. So the first day of these budget hearings is really the only day typically that Mayor Bibb comes to. The rest of it is handled by usually department heads. But um, this year it is the chief financial officer. Ahmed Abenama, and um, on the first day when the mayor was in attendance, Richard Starr was pretty pointed in some of his questions. Uh, he he said, "Who's getting fired for this 168?" million-dollar deficit and what it is doing to our city's kids. Um, Bibb had said prior to uh, the new superintendent taking the helm of CMSD that there was a deficit. He just didn't realize how great it was. And last week, uh, which you had mentioned, the new superintendent kind of laid out plans for how they can try to balance the books over the next two years. But that includes some pretty controversial things, such as cutting after-school programs run by external partners. Um, And the idea is well, who's accountable for this? You know, we have a new superintendent. um, And and so some council members were very unhappy over that.
0: You mentioned that uh, Mr. Abenama is going to be the one that's doing the Mm -hmm. testifying. In the past, it was always the department head's I kind of like that. And I wonder about right. the idea of the public. You get a chance to see who is that person in charge of this department. And we're not going to get the opportunity to do that this year. Yeah. Nor is council.
1: They had some oper- operational hearings uh, previously where a lot of uh, department heads speak up. And, and department heads typically do come to legislation that affects their department. But yes, Abenama is kind of leading the charge. Uh, he is the face of the city's finances. So he is the one doing it. I, I kind of did like seeing it. It's a good learning experience. You know, I've only been on this beat specifically in Cleveland for about a year. So the budget hearing is the time usually where you can see everyone come to the table. Um, And I think that that is, you know, good for me as a city hall reporter, but also for the public to see, you know, their tax dollars at work and who's who's running those.
0: They'll have more hearings next week. You'll be there. And then the budget has to be finalized and approved by April 1
1: correct so they will continue these hearings next week uh typically or the, the, the big thing i'm going to be looking out for next week is they will be discussing these non-departmental expenses which will include this vacancy pool so i'm sure we will hear more on that uh they'll likely wrap up next week and i expect that they will have it all amended approved and stuff uh, well before that april 1st deadline and
0: we are talking about the cleveland budget but no matter what community you live in this is a process that plays out everywhere where the mayor puts forward a budget in most cases sometimes the city manager and then you've got council sort of taking a look at it and saying what Mm -hmm. should it be and there should be consensus at the end of that so uh, wherever you live they're talking about budgets Uh, let's move on though to uh, police we did talk a little bit about police staffing Uh, Across the state, though, let's talk about police training. Attorney General Dave Yost this week announced recommendations from a task force he put together for future police training. It leans hard on communication and decision making. Officers currently must complete a minimum of 740 hours of instruction. And the task force recommended substituting at least 72 hours within that framework to deal with contemporary policing issues. Karen, one of the key recommendations is to provide training in communication to teach police officers how to better deal with people, especially those in crisis. That's a that's a main tenet of the job.
2: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got a lot of calls that involve people who are in mental health situations. And so trying to de-escalate those is now being proposed as something that should be added into the basic training that police officers get. Things like, you know, how to talk to people and try to bring them down, uh, reading body language, try to anticipate what's going to happen here. And, and again, trying to de-escalate situations. So the, this is there are seven total recommendations, but that's a big one. And also um, there's some other ones that deal with with like uh, expanding firearms qualifications, including passing a legal and policy exam, and also pulling back on the physical fitness requirements. So candidates, only need to graduate uh, they only need two of the three elements of that exam and one of the other things I think is really interesting is adding in new technologies while incorporating reality-based scenarios so there was a lot of talk about the need to do things in the real world and, and have that real world training and this would be an attempt to try to do that
0: so you only have to do two of the three physical things so you're saying there's a chance for me.
2: <laughs> well, uh, it, okay, I think it's a, it's a run, it's a run, push-up, sit-up, so yeah, I guess so. <laughs>
0: I'm working on the sit-ups, okay? Give me a break. Uh, Josh, there are a whole lot of other things. One of them is no more boring lectures. They want to have this training be not the kind of thing where you sit there and have someone drone on at you.
3: Yeah, hands-on training—that's what they're—that's the, what they're really talking about here. Um, and something that I thought was very interesting—that I don't know how many police departments do this or how many law enforcement, military do it—managing cognitive demand is one of the, uh, one of the training sessions. It sounds simple, I know, but you know, it's something that is rarely touched on, I would think, in the past in many law enforcement. Uh, professions essentially taking care of yourself. Um, so that's part of it there for sure. Um, the written test there's a, r- a written test now uh, as well or the proposed written test um, and it won't necessarily talk about how to use your weapon though that will be discussed <clears throat> excuse me but when to use your weapon the the processes behind that um, essentially intellectually as you're as you're Trying to navigate when to use it uh, in a situation, right? And that string of um,
0: of things that are being trained on. You mentioned managing cognitive demand. It's also critical decision making, tactical breathing, yeah. crisis mitigation, and de-escalation. Uh, all important skills. And as as we've heard from the Attorney General, Karen, this is these are recommendations that reflect the changing expectations that the police have from the public and others.
2: Yeah, Yo said during the press conference that he feels that the police training has been at a standstill in some ways over the last decade. And so he wants to kind of bring it forward a little bit, uh, including bringing in those communication skills, because that's that's becoming so important. And I mean, I we've heard about this for years in terms of trying to deescalate and diffuse situations involving people who are clearly in mental health crisis. And That was something that he was even talked about after the George Floyd murder, is how to start funding some parts of police departments that deal with mental health situations so that that's that's a totally different situation in many cases. But uh, he also says that there needs to be more funding, funding beyond the two years that are in the current state budget so that this kind of training can continue long term.
0: We've talked about police training. Now let's talk about police accountability. Akron's Citizens Police Oversight Board says it has the power to issue subpoenas and passed its new rules this week. But when it developed those in hopes that council would approve them, the board noted that if a union officer doesn't want to be subpoenaed, then he or she
3: doesn't have to comply. So is it really subpoena power, Josh? Yeah, well, uh, no, I think is the, the answer to that. The board says they are not taking away subpoena power. But um, in all but language, essentially they are no police officer will be forced to abide by the subpoena. It's voluntary. Um, but if there's a choice, you know, why would the police union, even permit that. So uh, subpoena power light, maybe. I mean, I don't know how they would enforce this if they're going to, uh, well, not enforce
0: it. Right. The the union obviously had pushed back and said that's against the union contract, you can't subpoena. So this is basically a response to that in a way that they're hoping to get city council to approve it, because at first they said, wait a minute, you got to deal with the union on this. So now they've got at least a document, maybe not that kind of ironclad subpoena power, but other powers that the Police Oversight Board might have. It's able to look into cases concurrently with investigations going on by the by the department itself. So, they're,
3: yeah, they do have that power. They do have, um, you know, they're not taking away anything but that subpoena power um, uh, per se. The union's attorney, you know, tells the city right now, look, we're in favor of this. Um, and why wouldn't they be? It's really in their favor if you look at the big picture.
0: And, Abby, the board now is asking citizens to support the rules make sure that that support is known to council because they need council to pass it
1: right yeah the board member wants people to write into their council members because they could vote on these rules as early as monday and uh, ultimately council members respond to the public or at least should they are they're the most uh they're the closest government officials to the people that they serve
0: right their constituents mm-hmm. for sure uh, anna huntsman will be on that on monday as well and we will now take a quick break Uh, When we come back, the Ohio Supreme Court said this week that workers who stayed at home during the pandemic can't get refunds of money withheld in the city where their work is headquartered. We'll talk more about that right after this break. It's the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. Welcome back to the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Mike McIntyre, joined this week by Abby Marshall and Josh Boos from Ideastream and Karen Kassler, our Columbus Bureau Chief. Remember back in 2020 when so many workers were doing their jobs from home due to the coronavirus? And many still are, in fact. But at the time, it was almost everyone. And cities continued to collect income taxes from workers, even if they worked at home in another town. Well, there was a suit filed over that saying the employer city wasn't entitled to their taxes. And this week, the House Supreme Court sided with the cities denying workers refunds for those collected taxes. Karen, it was a five to two ruling bipartisan, but but so not at all along party lines, but also not unanimous.
2: Right. What happened here was a remote worker in Cincinnati had said that during the lockdown, which we were all part of that. The uh, the government had told us all to stay home, right? He was working from home in Mount Ash, which is the suburb of Cincinnati, and his office was in Cincinnati. And he said because of that, that his company, and, or the city of Cincinnati rather, did not have the right and the authority to collect income tax because he wasn't working in the city. He was working at his home. And so what the the interesting thing to see the result here was that the court did rule that, yes, they did. And the argument had been from cities that this is a home rule power, that the state lawmakers, there was a state law that was passed that allowed state uh, cities to collect income tax from remote workers, that state lawmakers had granted cities that power, and so they were able to do this. And, of course, cities have said this would have been a huge problem if they would have lost out on that revenue from 2020, they would have had huge holes in their budgets, which would have meant they would have had to gone back to taxpayers to get money to try to repair that.
0: The chief justice and one other Republican dissented on this. They basically said, what? What?
2: Well, the chief justice says that basically state lawmakers don't have this power, and that this is not an appropriate use of a state law to do this when you've got a a non-resident working outside the city limits who is challenging whether the city can collect this income tax. And I, I just think it's it's interesting to hear the argument that this is somehow a taxpayer benefit because taxpayers could have gotten hundreds of millions of dollars in refunds. But like I said, the city had argued that well if they had had to go back to taxpayers to fix the budget holes that would have resulted here taxpayers would have paid at that point or they would have lost services that they find valuable you know i mean when you start talking about city cuts you're talking about the most basic of things like police and and trash pickup and patching potholes and all that kind of stuff
0: uh, it's interesting that we were just talking about the budget abby and you imagine if the city of cleveland then had to give refunds to everybody that worked in Strongsville and Cleveland Heights and elsewhere and didn't come down to their offices during that time. Now I know, that at least here at IdeaStream, they are, they are recording where you're working on a regular basis. We let them know this is our plan, this person's working three days at home and two days in the office. In my mm-hmm. case, it's four days in the office. And they'll take the taxes accordingly and, and make sure that that works that way. But if you had to go back and the city of Cleveland had to hand back money, This is not just an issue about taxpayers getting refunds. This is an issue of a huge hole in the budget.
1: Right. And for someone like me that lives and works in the city, it's not a huge deal. But um, yeah, it can be it can be totally detrimental to a lot of programs, especially when we talk about um, how downtowns are kind of shifting and changing uh, without workforces coming back. Go ahead, Josh.
3: No, uh, I was just going to say, you know, now, too, we have people that, uh, you know, downtown is still not back to where it was pre-pandemic right. level-wise. So if you're trying to make up that money with current funding, that's mm-hmm. going to be re- a big challenge for sure. Except for today, it's uh, it felt like pre-pandemic with the traffic coming down. But <laughs> that was about it. You know, uh, it, it's it's certainly not to where, to where it was. So that would be a challenge if they had to do that. Mm-hmm. Karen, in your reporting,
0: you talked to the Ohio Municipal League. They said it was a win for taxpayers. But then I think it was the Buckeye Institute that said, uh, this is just doesn't make sense. You should only have to pay taxes when you work in a community if it's supposed to be a tax about, you know, about where you work.
2: Yeah, and the Buckeye Institute, if you follow state government at all, you've heard of that group. It's a conservative think tank that doesn't officially take positions on legislation, but certainly has advocated for streamlining government, as they say, and and cutting taxes and all of that. And so they did make the argument in court. They filed the lawsuit on behalf of this gentleman, Josh Shad, and they argued saying that local municipalities – should be able to tax only within those jurisdictions where people are actually living and working. And so that they really felt like this was a, a overstepping of the bounds that uh, the court could do here when it came to the state law.
0: All right. Changes to Ohio's new recreational marijuana statute are likely to come in the form of administrative rules rather than legislation passed by lawmakers. Voters approved the statute in November. It allows those Over 21 to use and possess marijuana, but lawmakers aren't likely, as we said, to take up that issue. Why not, Karen?
2: Well, the issue was actually taken up in December, and I know that feels like a long time ago, but it really wasn't that long ago. I mean, we voters approved this in November, and then the Senate came forward and said, we want to make some changes here, which lawmakers had said they wanted to make changes even before voters approved issue two, and so they passed a bill, 29-2. It was a liquor bill, that they added in some marijuana-related things to it. It would... Um, uh, allow for the 114 medical dispensaries in Ohio to sell recreational marijuana, which right now they can't do, and would also limit households to six plants, increase the tax rate to 15%. That passed the Senate. It's gone nowhere in the House, and there doesn't seem to be any appetite to bring it up, even though Governor Mike DeWine has said repeatedly that there need to be some more rules here. He's concerned not only about recreational marijuana and the fact that you can't buy it anywhere essentially, though it is legal to have in Ohio, but also the substance called Delta-8, which we've talked about on this program, some people call diet weed, which has no real regulations in Ohio and can be sold all over the place.
0: Yeah, so that's what I meant by, by saying they're not going to take it up. If the House doesn't yeah. do what the Senate said, then we're not going anywhere, but they're going to have administrative rules that will handle some of this stuff. How is that going to work?
2: Well, administrative rules don't have to go through the legislature. And so this week, the guy who's going to head up the division of cannabis, the cannabis control program, who was heading up the division of liquor control, this is Jim, Jim Canepa. He's a former assistant attorney general, and uh, he says he's going to move forward on some of these things that would uh, allow some regulations to go forward because the law. It'll be, I think, sometime next year. I think before everything would take effect. If the law, um, if they, are, if the legislature doesn't make any changes, so they're trying to move forward and make some changes now to maybe do something like allowing sales in medical dispensaries or, or something where, the, the idea being that there need to be regulations, and if you don't allow medical dispensaries to sell these products then there really aren't regulations and that's what a lot of people who were hoping to, to see issue two pass were wanting they wanted some rules and regulations so kids don't get exposed to this and and so you can trust that this product is is a good product
0: jim Canepo, who you mentioned from the ohio department of liquor control uh, also noted though that as they go down this track they're going to put forward all of these rules they're going to get stuff in shape And then the worst thing he said that could happen is they're rounding third, and then the legislature decides to step in.
2: Yeah, and that is certainly something that could happen. I mean, if indeed the legislature does go ahead and do something, it could be toward the end of the year. They have until December, the end of the year, to act on this bill. And so, yeah, it would be interesting to see if uh, some of these rules were already put in place, and then the House said, okay, here's what we want to do now. And I, I would expect this We have what's called the lame duck session coming up in uh, December, which is after the election, before the new session starts, and it's usually pretty crazy. That's the kind of thing that you almost would expect to see something come forward because it would just be throwing a wrench into potentially things that are already in process
0: i love that karen Castler is already gearing up for december and the lane <laughs> session you, you gotta plan <laughs> ahead man i was and just circled, thinking wow that's a ways circled <laughs> off. on her calendar um there's gonna be election in between then you know bigger, <laughs> yes big senate election all kinds oh, of stuff yeah. going on oh yeah um Hey, going back to the Supreme Court case regarding where you're working during the pandemic, Jonathan Enton, the uh, constitutional law expert at Case Western Reserve University, who's often a guest on the show and always a listener as well, uh, writes in. He says, it's important to keep in mind that the Ohio Supreme Court emphasized that the General uh, General Assembly specifically authorized municipalities to collect income taxes for work done by employees of businesses that were closed during the pandemic. That legislative authorization is no longer in place. His point being the legislature said it's okay for cleveland to collect taxes from somebody that is you know currently in strongsville uh, where they're working that isn't necessarily in place which leads to what i was mentioning earlier there are companies now that are being very specific about where their people are working and what taxes they can collect I love descended. it when
2: lawyers are listening. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Not just lawyers, but this this guy. <laughs> Law professors, <laughs> this yes. This guy's locked Absolutely. down on that. <laughs> Absolutely. I,
0: I did that once before. I've mentioned this on the show, but one time we were talking about uh, uh, rocket science, and I said something like, you'd need a rocket scientist to answer that question. And the next call was like Joe from Fairview Park, who works at NASA, and he's a rocket scientist. <laughs> <do. laughs> That's great. So it does happen on this show. Thank you, Jonathan, for writing in. Appreciate that. Moving on to college cuts. Speaking of colleges, colleges and universities across the state are making cuts to bring budgets into balance. Baldwin-Wallace University previously announced staff and program cuts. Last week, Kent State University's president and said that KSU would need to reduce spending by tens of millions of dollars in the coming years, and that could mean cuts there as well. I want to note that the president, Todd Dykin, is a board member of Ideastream Public Media. Yesterday, Eastern Gateway Community College in Youngstown took the nuclear option when its board voted to halt enrollment. At the end of the current semester, students will be transferred either to another community college or to Youngstown State University. Abby, each of the university and college's circumstances differ, but what we're seeing really is what's called the demographic cliff. That's one of the big problems they're all facing, the pool of students.
1: Right. So the birth rate has dropped across the country, meaning there are less high school students, so less people that are potentially pursuing higher education is what it comes down to. And then when we get to some more economic factors, which I'm sure we'll discuss, uh, that, that also plays into it as well.
0: The cost of higher education, the debt incurred by students, that's also been something that is being really looked at now. Is it mm-hmm. worth it? Some are asking.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm Gen Z. I, I was in school four or so years ago. I graduated. Uh, so I I have always grown up in a time where I had to accept the fact that either I need to work really hard and get a ton of scholarships or it uh, or Incur tens of thousands or up to a $100,000, depending on where you went in debt that I'd be paying off for for decades. And and anymore, it's not even totally guaranteed that you're going to get a job in your field. We're living in this weird post pandemic world. Um, so I do have friends with degrees that are not working within their field or, or working jobs that even require a degree. So If people my age are unable to afford a cost of living, rent, food, things like that, like forget buying a house, having kids, that sort of thing. So you really have to juggle, like, am I going to pursue something that could derail potentially my other life goals or should I pursue, you know, a trade or just going directly into the workforce in the first place? I
0: wonder if that's behind some of what the cuts are going to be. The colleges have said Uh, that Mm -hmm. there are going to be things on the chopping block and people are very concerned because some of them are going to be humanities classes and those type of things. But the ones that would be played up might be the ones that are more directly geared toward workforce, basically make the college degree pay off.
1: Right. So if you have a real quote unquote skill, uh, you're more likely to have a job, which which kind of. It kind of blows, to be honest, because the point of college obviously is to go get a degree, learn a skill, uh, pursue that job. But um, one of the biggest values that I got out of going to college is being exposed to new ideas, learning critical thinking skills, uh, taking some gender and sexuality courses, race, all of these things that a lot of people might not be exposed to, but are going to be exposed to in the quote unquote, again, real world. So while these workforce skills might make you a more hireable candidate, it it stinks that a lot of these kids are going to miss out on some of these humanity courses and and things that can make them uh, a more well-rounded person. I think
3: in a lot of different, especially rural places, uh, there's been a push, particularly on the conservative political side, to focus more on traits. We did a story in uh, our newscast uh, just, I believe, yesterday or the day before about Stark uh, Stark State focusing on trades. They're opening a new welding facility, um, and we're seeing more and more of that. Not only at the collegiate level, but at the high school level too. Um, even back when I went, you know, during the covered wagon days, they had uh, <laughs> they had vocational schools where you could go and learn right. these trades. Mm-hmm. And I think that because of what's going on um, with the costs, because of what's going on politically, where people say um, may argue that it's too. Uh, there's too much politics uh, in, in, in colleges and universities as far as being taught to uh, students, that this may be the way to go for some people because college isn't for everybody. Mm-hmm. If you were on the covered wagon days, I don't think they had the wheel then when I was going to school. <laughs> we hadn't yet. You and Lincoln graduated that <laughs> year. <laughs> exactly.
0: um, let me ask about the big story in Youngstown, and that's something that our Connor Morris was covering. But we've got a situation there where a community college is... Basically out of business. That's, right. we're looking at. You know, we've been looking at local colleges, Notre Dame College, which is in some serious trouble, and had been talking with other universities and uh, and and who might come in and take care of uh, some of these issues. Here we see that actually playing out with Youngstown State saying we'll take the students.
1: Right. And even when you look at Youngstown State, they are also cutting six programs. Uh, so obviously these smaller colleges, you you have impacts on the bigger universities. You mentioned Kent State. Miami is consolidating 18, I think, of its majors and programs. Okay. Uh, those are hurting. But when you look at some of these smaller programs, they're not immune and, and maybe they're more susceptible and they are feeling it in, in more ways. So I'm really interested to see over the next decade or how long this is going to play out, how many schools we end up having still in Ohio.
0: We did mention the demographic cliff. I want to note that um, Dr. Todd Diakin also said uh, at Kent State, some of the other factors that are driving this are relatively flat state aid, a cap on how much the university can increase tuition each year, and then challenges with enrollment as well. So all of those are are things that our colleges are facing, not just in Northeast Ohio, but across the state and across the country as well. We'll continue to cover that. Early voting has begun, meaning it's officially election season, everybody. Yay. All right. (laughs) Pre-politics has been playing out in the state legislature and the U.S. Senate primary for months. Early voting begins Uh, It began this week for the March 19th primary. Karen, the contentious speakership fight that Jason Stevens uh, is in right now, that he he won, it means he's going to be facing a fight later, although he's got no problem with being reelected. But what's the potential impact of him and the now Senate president, Matt Huffman? Uh, How does that play into this whole election season?
2: Well, that just makes it all the more interesting because Matt Huffman has been... The rumor has been that once he he is running for the House, once he's elected to the House, that he would challenge Stevens for speaker. And that's been kind of the underlying narrative that's been going throughout this whole back and forth between Jason Stevens, the current speaker, and Derek Maron, who had been chosen by the caucus as speaker before the session started. And then there was a floor vote and Democrats decided to side with Stevens. So that made him speaker. And so you have the Republican Party censuring those 22 Republicans who voted for Stevens, calling them the blue 22. Uh, my my dad lives in one of these districts, and the flyer that's out is, is really hilarious because it's referring to that particular Republican state representative as basically a puppet of Joe Biden, which just I mean, that's just ridiculous. But mm. this is what we expect here, because certainly Marin's people are fighting to unseat Stevens' people and then get more control. And, and the, the thought is that Marin and Huffman are potentially aligned here. But, um, y- you know, we're, we're waiting to see what happens with some of these situations. But one thing that is clear is that the Marin people had filed for control of the ohio house's campaign financing arm they, they want to control that money so that they could put that money behind their candidates and the uh, a local court here in columbus ruled that nope they don't have that control the control stays with the speaker so that makes a big difference
0: yeah money is going to be a big driving factor here and there's a lot yeah, as it always in that is one. exactly yep. um what are the primary challenges that you're watching from the state level and by the way i think all 99 house seats are up
2: yeah, all 99 House seats are up, as well as half the Senate. We have six open Senate seats and 19 open House seats. And uh, there's some interesting moments here that you could see. I mean, Bill Seitz, who, if you followed politics at all in Ohio, uh, he's retiring, which is uh, a loss for those of us who find him to be uh, a good source for sound soundbites. Um, so that's at least something to keep in mind. But also there's um, in Sandusky, you have former... Republican former state representative Steve Krause, who lost his seat eight years ago because he was convicted of felony theft. He had to go to the Ohio Supreme Court to get onto the ballot. They restored him to the ballot, and he is now running against current Republican representative, D.J. Swearengin. So that's one area. You've got a couple of uh, districts where there are, I think there are two or three trans candidates who are running. They, they have almost no chance because of the way that the map is drawn, but still those are some some areas to keep an eye on. There's a lot of interesting things going on here. I mean, the the it's hard for us to cover it because again, there are 99 seats that are up in the House just in that, and plus you've got uh, Congress, President, U.S. Senate, all that stuff. But there's a lot of interesting stuff, and and what happens in the primary typically. Dictates what's going to happen in the fall just because of the way those maps are drawn.
0: All right. We had more to talk about with politics, but there's going to be plenty of time for that, too. I do want to just touch quickly, though, on the fact, Josh, that there was another debate for the U.S. Senate candidates on the Republican side. They're running to face off against Sherrod Brown, the incumbent Democrat. Bernie Marino and Matt Dolan, the state senator, and Secretary of State Frank LaRose. all met for a candidate forum. Josh, border security and
3: immigration were key issues for all of them. Yeah, that's right. This is one of the areas Areas too where I think that um, there was at least one area in this little section where there were policy differences here, you know, Dolan says Putin is dangerous. He's a threat to the U S that's why we need to uh, be helping Ukraine continuing to help fund that. Marino says there's no path to victory with Ukraine. It's a stalemate. We're not going to fight endless wars anymore. He went on to say, Oh, by the way, uh, the U S can continue to financially support Israel in the conflict in Gaza. So he had that, uh, you know, obviously two totally separate, um, separate mindsets there for those and then LaRose, he blamed biden for ukraine uh, implying that an invasion would not have happened under a president trump but he didn't really articulate his view on where he's going so mm-hmm. um yeah it's that that was it's certainly the border they all agree there needs to be something done at the border some of the uh, vignettes of that uh were, were different but other than that no
2: uh, I Can, can ahead, I add Karen. one thing? Yeah, yeah. If you uh, missed that debate and you want to see another one, the next one is March 6th down in Cincinnati. And also, I've invited all three of the candidates to come on our TV show, The State of Ohio. Matt Dolan is on this week, and Bernie Marino will be on next week, still setting it up with Frank LaRose. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Guess whose
0: name was brought up 36 times during that debate?
3: Yeah. Any guess? Yeah. Donald Trump? There it is. Donald Trump.
0: So be interesting to hear that again, again, about who's aligned with the the president. One has gotten his endorsement. That's Bernie Marino. But you still hear that as a dominating factor in uh, in that debate and in that race as well. All right. We do have to take a quick break right now. We're going to come back on the other side, uh, on the other side. And you can look up on the screen. And before that, somewhere in Cleveland, it's Superman Legacy. This is the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. We'll be right back. Good to have you back here on the Reporters' Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre, and with me is Karen Kassler, Abby Marshall, and Josh Boos. Plenty more to talk about. We'll kind of lightning round it here a little bit. You're welcome, by the way, to weigh in still. soi at ideastream.org is where to send the email. We're heading into March and getting closer to spring, but we still have several weeks left in the flu season. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention list flu activity as very high in Ohio right now. Josh most people get flu shots in the fall, but health experts say it's still not too late for a flu shot
3: this season. Yeah, the Department of Health says it's still not too late. Get out there, get your flu shot. It's especially important now because that's this is when we're seeing flu numbers uh, start to go up. That's according to the health director, uh, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff. Um, but he went on to say, I think it's important to point out, you know, so far this has been a normal year um, when it comes to flu cases, normal being in, in line with other uh, previous. So uh, it's, we're not at a, a problem level, You should uh, I should say, but uh, definitely there's still time. And in addition to flu cases,
0: he talked yesterday about whooping cough, about uh about measles, and the measles thing really caught my eye because most people had been vaccinated as children. There's been a influx of measles cases in Europe, and now we're seeing three in Ohio, and just three made him
3: sound the alarm. Yeah, just three. Um, he's looking back to 2002 when there was an outbreak in central Ohio. He's concerned with international travel that what's going on with the measles outbreak in the U.K. could come here. The common denominator, though, of everyone that does not uh, that is getting measles, no vaccine. Um, And so he uh, really spent time yesterday during a news conference urging people to vaccinate, 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 um, because right now, again, only three. None of those are in Northeast Ohio, by the way, but um, that could change. We don't want to get to where we were in 2022. Uh Let's go back to one other topic before we move on to the next,
0: and that is about the college cuts. Ruth sends an email saying, I work at an area vocational school, and our enrollment continues to grow each year. And talking Mm -hmm. to my students, some want a trade to work in, but many are fleeing their home district schools. And so she mentions that, that enrollment is up at uh, trade schools like that. So certainly something for us to take a look at. Ruth, thanks for weighing in. Appreciate that. We haven't had very much snow this winter. And a few doses from storms, lake effect here and there, but overall it's been mild. And again, this is because I bought a snowblower, so <laughs> most of you are welcome. Those who aren't so happy, though, are skiers who can't do their thing without a nice base. And I know ski resorts, Josh, can make snow, yeah. but we saw Joe Scalzo writing in cranes, the problem is if you look out your back door and it's green grass, you're not thinking ski season.
3: Yeah, it's kind of like uh, the holidays, Christmas time when uh, you you don't want to go shopping, uh, when it's not snowing, if it's 50 degrees outside. But when it's snowing, it puts you in the mood to shop and mingle. Um yeah, you can still ski. They have artificial snow, but right now, um, you know, the mindset for a lot of people has transitioned to spring, especially with the way these temperatures have been even today. Um, you know, Vail Resorts owns uh, many different ski resorts around the country. They don't have individual numbers as far as what each place is doing as far as attendance goes, but overall attendance is down 16% year to year. These don't feel like the the winters that I had when I was younger.
0: It's going to get cold uh, a little bit this weekend, but I looked at the forecast for next week and it's it's yeah. shirt sleeve weather again.
1: I think it's also worth noting with skis uh, with ski places that, that you can manufacture snow, but it still requires a low temperature to keep that snow and mm. to build up on it. So a lot of ski seasons in recent years have been been delayed. Um, So it becomes a question too of like are people going to want to buy passes if they can't potentially ski until January, right, February—it's right. a super short ski season.
0: Yeah, tw- twenty-seven degrees. I think they need to, to
2: start. The... And this is
3: February. This should not be. I mean, we're in the the the, the depths of okay. winter. This should not. But be you're close. not complaining, are you? I'm not complaining. Okay, I'm... Climate
2: change, baby. Uh, I, I I would just like to note that uh, a week ago tomorrow I was tubing and it was freezing. And <laughs> what's it going to be today? I mean, it's just it's it's crazy. And then the week before that it was like sixty. It's just it's wild.
0: It is wild. That's for sure. Strap in, right? Uh, let's uh, hit a, one serious news story uh, before we uh, exit the show. we got a little bit of time here. Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Michael O'Malley, who's facing a primary challenge, refused to take part in a candidates forum hosted by the Greater Cleveland Congregations this week. He leveled an accusation of extortion against GCC because of a commitment the group asked the candidates to make in a pre-forum questionnaire. Matthew Ahn is challenging O'Malley in the Democratic primary. O'Malley seeking a third term. Josh, O'Malley declined the vacation, invitation because he says the candidates, we're asked to commit five hundred thousand dollars from the office's budget to an outside organization. GCC says we are asking you to commit actual money toward a toward an institution that we think yeah. is important.
3: Yeah, they say this is not controversial. This helps victims. Um, our colleague Matt Richmond has done some great reporting on this throughout the week. Here, uh, O'Malley goes as far as calling it extortion. He sent the GCC a letter. They said uh, he said I don't take calling it extortion lightly. Um, You're talking about our budget and what we do with our money. Uh, The GCC, though, then said, look, this was not a demand. It was a question. It was part of a question that we were going to uh, that we're asking uh, the candidates. But um, look, O'Malley said, you're going to put me in front of these people, make me take a position financially. And uh, I would say that's what a debate is. You could you know, you could talk that through.
0: Uh, they wanted the money to go to the Brenda Glass Multipurpose Trauma Center. And right. we're just saying, would you commit money to that? I think it goes deeper, though. There's uh, there's a you know, in the party, you can tell who are going to be your uh, your base and who are not. And in a, in that circumstance, it appears that the candidate thought, well, that's not going to be my friendly crowd, given those kinds of questions. So I'm not going to go there.
3: Yeah. And he didn't have to deal with, uh, you know, the the repercussions of that afterwards, the, the press that may follow if he said no. Moving on, one of the most revered Cleveland pitchers is making
0: his way back to the Guardians. Carlos Cookie Carrasco is now in spring training with the guards. He's invited there on a minor league contract. I remember interviewing him in 2016 when the native of Valenzuela became a U.S. citizen. You just had to love the guy. He and his teammates, he had them asking him questions in the locker room. So he'd get them all in. And he said one of them that, that tripped him, almost tripped him up was who was the president during World War One. He said it was the <laughs> toughest question for him. And of course, we all know that's Woodrow Wilson, right? Yeah. Uh, he said it took he took his time, refreshed his mind, and he got it right. He's also a survivor being diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia in 2019. He's been in remission since 2020. How do you not root for a guy like this, Karen? He's uh, now going to be 37 years old, coming back. I sure hope he makes the team.
2: God, I love Cookie. I remember seeing him down here with the Clippers. I mean, he's just, he's amazing. And the uh, All-Star game that was in Cleveland a couple years ago, there was a moment where it was stand-up for cancer, and so many people had signs with his name on it. It was just a really beautiful moment. So I hope he he gets back, because he's just a great, he's a, a fun guy, and what a great story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and uh he spent 11 seasons with uh, with the team, so um yeah, it'll be fun. I knew I just wanted to give you an opportunity to gush about the Guardians and the fact that they're you know back it. in spring training now.
2: You know it, absolutely. It's just uh it's time for baseball. Let's go. <laughs>
0: See,
3: our mindset is off snow, guys.
0: Yes, exactly. Yep, yep. Well, of course they're they're in Arizona now right, as well. Right, right. Um, By the way, I got a note from uh, City Councilman Charles Slife when we were talking about the recruitment of police officers, and he brought this up during the hearings as well, but Mm -hmm. he says, over 900 people applied to be an officer in 2022, and the first class hired from that pool had 11 cadets. Nearly one in four applicants were black residents of Cleveland. None were hired. It's hard to grasp how so few people could fit the bill to be an officer. So Mm -hmm. the question there is, you know, when the city says it's tough to fill the ranks, uh, Abby, one of the things might be, well, what are your standards yeah. and are you are you really giving everyone a chance?
1: Exactly. And this is something that Councilman Slave and I have talked about before, and it's definitely something I want to follow up on in, in the coming weeks and months. Um, it, it is something that Bib kind of addressed and said, you know, we have these standards. So it's looking into what those standards are, especially if we are that desperate right now for officers. All
0: right, if you're a councilman or if you're Mm. a professor of constitutional law, just (laughs) go ahead and write in and and be a part of the show. I appreciate all of that feedback. Uh, Last thing we're gonna talk about, another type of homecoming for the city this summer. The Superman legacy movie directed by James Gunn will reportedly film in Cleveland and Cincinnati. According to a report from cleveland.com, the project is in line for $11 million in film tax credits from the Ohio Department of Development, Glenville High School students, Joe Siegel and Joe Schuster. uh, created Superman in 1933, kind of cool. I remember mm. when uh, Winter Soldier, I think it was, uh, mm. uh, it was uh, F- uh, Captain America was filmed here. Um, Avengers, uh, Spider Man. Mm. neat when the city becomes the the set
3: i interviewed the uh, directors of the um, avengers the brothers who are those you guys remember the names of those the russo brothers? brothers the russo brothers yes i interviewed those uh, th- them many years ago and yeah it was so cool it was a homecoming for them too so it's really neat i love seeing them i love seeing the buildings in the movies guys uh, great talking
0: with you you're all superheroes to me josh boos and uh, abby marshall yeah. you as well karen i hope you get to feeling better pretty soon
2: Absolutely. Hey, have a great weekend.
0: All right, everyone. Appreciate that. And, of course, we're going to end today with a song. What else should it be but Superman by R.E.M. To get the last word on today's topics, send an email to soi at ideastream.org. we on Twitter, now exit Sound of Ideas. Monday on the Sound of Ideas, Jenny Hamill introduces you to finalists in this year's Accelerate Citizens Make Change Civic piss, Pitch Contest, which wrapped up last night. If you miss any portion of this program, find us online or listen to the Sound of Ideas podcast, which you can get on any podcast app. You can also hear a rebroadcast tonight at 9 on 89.7 WKSU. And check out the television version, Ideas, tonight at 7.30 on WBIZ-PBS. I'm Mike McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.